So this is Dr. Amy Hoffnagel from the University of Rochester. I am here today interviewing Dr. Saul Soriano for the SNAC Periscope. Uh, Dr. Soriano is the BCH Endowed Chair in Pediatric Neuroanesthesia, Senior Associate in Perioperative Anesthesia, and Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. He is currently affiliated with Boston Children's Hospital. Um, Dr. Soriano has done extensive research and publication in the area of pediatric neuroanesthesia as well as neurocognitive development, anesthetic neuromodulation in the developing brain. I'd like to thank Dr. Soriano for taking the time to speak with us today about his passion for pediatric neuroanesthesia. What do you think distinguishes pediatric neuroanesthesia from its broader subspecialties of both pediatric and or neuroanesthesia? Well, 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 thank you very much for um, taking the time to interview me and, and discuss my views of, uh, of a field that has been a passion of mine for over 25 years. As a pediatric neuroanesthesiologist in a major tertiary care center, I think I fulfill a need for to care for patients uh, who are extremely ill and have some, some uh, special uh, requirements uh, they go through uh, the, these neurosurgical cases. And I think the area, the field of pediatric neuroanesthesia is really more of an evolution of two fields, uh, pediatric anesthesia as well as neuroanesthesia. And certainly there are some areas where the expertise of both subspecialties really will benefit uh, the infant or child. And, and recently there has been a move among our surgical colleagues to really look at the, the volume outcome um, effect of a um, patient, of uh, the provider's training as well as experience. Uh, there have been several um, studies that have shown that the, the more volume and the more experience you have taking care of specialized cases, this has in, in fact been shown both in pediatric surgery as well as pediatric neurosurgery, um, the outcome is better. And this has been brought forth by a um, distinguished uh, pediatric neurosurgeon at the UK named Paul Chumas, where he's written several editorials stating the fact that, indeed, uh, pediatric patients who are taken care of uh, by uh, pediatric neurosurgeons, neurointensivists, as well as neuroanesthesiologists fare better. Again, this is mostly due to the fact that they have regionalized care there where patients are brought to these regional centers that specialize in the care of, of patients. We, on the other hand, here in the United States, have uh, tertiary care centers where they try to take care of everything, and this is where the problem may occur. But um, here, even in the United States, the American College of Surgeons, a subset of them, uh, who, whose moniker is the Pediatric Surgical Association, um, have, have really put forth the fact that we, perhaps we need to create a subspecialty a setting for the care of pediatric patients. And there's certainly some, they bring up some important issues, such as, again, the volume of, of cases that you do, the experience that you bring into these cases, and, and the outcomes. Uh, and, and better outcomes due to the advanced training. So there, there, there is uh, some need for it, and uh, and it's not within the the realm of uh, anesthesia. But I think our our surgical colleagues, are, as well as our intensive our, uh, members of our uh, faculty who are intensivists, are asking for patients uh, for anesthesiologists who have specialty training and who feel comfortable taking care of patients who are 
or infants or children. Yeah, so along those lines, what training path would you recommend to, say, residents who are looking to be pediatric neuroanesthesiologists? Well, uh, that's interesting because I think to be a, a, a good pediatric neuroanesthesiologist, you have to be a fantastic pediatric anesthesiologist. Um, certainly, when you look at some of the requirements for taking care of critically ill infants and children, there are some guidelines that aren't, aren't universally accepted, and that is, there there are there is a move forth for these specialized centers to take care of uh, surgical subspecialties in pediatric uh, uh, surgery, neuroanesthesia, as well as uh, pediatric surgery, pediatric. Uh, uh, intensive care as well as pediatric anesthesiology to take care of these patients. And this is, uh, again, a move among our uh, pediatric neurosurgeons where they're, they're trying to say that patients who are have major congenital anomalies and complex diseases may require um, uh, subspecialty uh, trained uh, practitioners. Uh, and I think having the one-year training of pediatric uh, anesthesiology at a major pediatric hospital is I think, a very, very important uh, criteria to have, particularly for the younger younger members of our, our specialty who, who would like to be in this field. Uh, this is not to take away any, um, any gravitas from some of our uh, more experienced colleagues who've been doing this for you know, 20, 30 years. I mean, certainly the ex- experiential uh, factor really plays a huge role uh, because they've seen everything and been able to adapt. But I think it's just being feeling comfortable taking care of a uh, newborn, uh, premature neonate, an infant who may have a posterior fossa tumor, for instance. So uh, it's I think just being able to handle small patients is really a, a key, key skill and um, uh, funded knowledge to be able to deliver uh, care for these patients. Okay. So the physiologist physiologic principles of cerebral perfusion should be the same between the adult and pediatric patient, but we don't really know much about the ranges of autoregulation in the pediatric population. What advice can you give to the occasional pediatric neuroanesthesiologists on monitoring and treatment to help prevent adverse sequela? Well, I think it's um, this problem really permeates throughout our practice of pediatric anesthesia. We we really don't know what the lower uh, limits of uh, cerebral perfusion is in these patients. Um, when you look at um, when you look at some of the data that's coming out of the Johns Hopkins group as well as Texas Children's group, Ken Brady, Jenny Leaf, uh, they've shown that there's a wide range and wide spectrum of, of uh, lower limits of autoregulation in these patients where they've used special monitors to see where the lower limit of autoregulation is. So the fact that we can't just name a number or set a blood pressure um, and feel safe about it is is different. So we have to treat patients um, individually just to assure that we don't allow their blood pressures to drop too far, too far down. Um, this is a, um, a topic that's actually been introduced and challenged uh, by John Drummond uh, several years ago in an editorial that he wrote looking at the fact that there is no lower limit of autoregulation that we can name in adults. Uh, and he cited uh, several st- the flaws of several studies and the flaws of the interpretation of these studies by the practitioners. 
So I think we're we're undergoing the same. Uh, actually, we're revisiting this whole issue about lower limit upregulation. We just can't say just because they're smaller or younger that their blood pressures are lower and that their lower limit upregulation should be low. So work by Ken Brady and Jenny Lee, as well as Monica blah blah blah, have shown that in fact the lower limit upregulation may be fairly high. Um, and just to point out the fact that this is a real problem, uh, my colleague uh, Mary Ellen McCann here at Boston Children's Hospital recently reported um, a case series of six uh, neonates and infants uh, undergoing routine anesthetics where uh, after the end of these hour, two-hour-long procedures, uh, these patients develop seizures. And when they've been worked up for seizures, they found that there are watershed areas of cerebral ischemia and, uh, and hypoperfusion. Uh, and doing a root cause analysis of these six cases, a common feature was these patients were actually fairly hypotensive um, for an extended period of time during the course of the anesthetics and hypocarbic. So it's not just only the blood pressure, but also the way you manage uh, your carbon dioxide, your ventilation. Uh, we, there's a tendency to, uh, to hyperventilate some of these kids just because uh, we're, many practitioners aren't used to being able to uh, ventilate such small patients, thereby endangering their cerebral perfusion. So there is uh, there is a, a move afloat where we're trying to educate and also try trying to look at this in a more systematic fashion to see what what we can do to minimize, uh, I guess, iatrogenic cerebral ischemia in uh, our, our routine anesthetics in pediatric patients. Uh, do you have a favorite case, and do you have any management techniques that you'd like to share with the listeners for that case? Well, doing this for over 25 years, I have many favorite cases, but I think it, it runs from... Uh, some really sad stories of, of patients having really severe tumors and unresectable tumors to just minor procedures. But I think one of the more gratifying cases are, are and, and, and unfortunately becoming rarer and rarer, are, are taking care of these newborns with myelomeningocils. Because um, they're interesting because they are, again, provide a wide spectrum of, um, of challenges as well as um, different anesthetic techniques. Uh, for example, the other day I did a, a child with a myelocele, so so it was just a, such a small a small lesion, and we just basically did one IV, um, and the, the patient was was uh, was diagnosed interurinally. We we anticipated the delivery. We did a quick workup and brought the patient in, and then resected it. Uh, and, and that's one end of the spectrum, and the patient did well. I have no, I have no problem at all. He's nine days old now, uh, as opposed to one of our more challenging ones where I was called to um, help with a patient who um, had a large myelomeningocele. Uh, we went to the, bed, uh, to, the, to the NICU and found that his oxygen saturations were in, in the low 80s. Uh, and uh, that triggered something in in our workup, I mean, and we decided to do an echocardiogram in this patient, and found that he had a, a left hypoplastic right heart syndrome. So, um, and that's where there's, there's an absence of the left ventricle. Uh, so this patient was extremely hypoxic and an extremely very tenuous situation. So there was a lot of back and forth between the, our anesthesia team, anesthesiology team, as with the neurosurgeons and the cardiac surgeons and we found that uh, there's no way they can repair or do a palliative uh, 
repair in this patient. So we went ahead and did the case. So when we went and uh, brought the patient in, our job was to try to maximize um, pulmonary circulation, and um, and we brought the patient in, put put, put the patient on um, on pressors to, to to maintain pressors as well as uh, prostaglandins to maintain the patent for patent ductus arteriosus. And again, we were over-circulating him at that at his pulmonary circulation at that point, and had to decrease his pulmonary circulation. So we actually brought in a ventilator that allowed us to deliver hypoxic levels of oxygen to just try to minimize the, that that intracardiac shunt and, and try to go ahead and try to perfuse the patient systemically. So it was quite a challenging case. Again, the patient did well, uh, well enough to be able to come back to the OR to repair his cardiac defect. Again, you can see that a lot of these patients with mild meningocele will will recover. Some of them would um, will have minimal um, deficits of their lower extremities. Some of them will come back with multiple VP shunt revisions. So it is a large spectrum. But again, there, it is rewarding because it's something you see that's cured, and uh, they have fairly good outcomes uh, in this case. Do you have anything else that you would like to add or discuss? Well. Um, I'd like to say that uh, I'm really proud of the way uh, the Society for Neuroscience and Anesthesia has really been able to draw neuroanesthesiologists from all fields, uh, from intensivists, uh, adult, adult neuroanesthetists, uh, those who just deal with uh, interventional procedures and vascular procedures, and also the pediatric anesthesiologists. And I'm proud to say that I'm one of two uh, pediatric neuroanesthesiologists that have been who's who've been the president of the society, myself and Monica Bavalala. And it's a wonderful society for an exchange of ideas, particularly both in research and in clinical approaches. And it's a great place to network and find people like-minded, who are like-minded in their passions about medicine as well as research.